everybody, I'm glad to have you with me again. I'm really excited about today's conversation. I'm gonna bring you right into a staff meeting with our team. This is our chance to drop in and listen in on a really important discussion of culture. This is part one of a three-part podcast on Gateway Culture, and I pray it blesses you and helps you to lead in every area of life. All right, everybody, welcome to Culture School. Our discussion today is culture, and we're going to have probably four of these Culture School moments a year. Today happens to be the fifth Tuesday uh, of a month, so those are those are days where we kind of depart from our regular Team Tuesday format, and we do Culture School because culture is so powerful. Culture is so powerful, and it's something that we all can learn about. It's something we can all grow in, and so we're going to just dedicate some time throughout the year to talking about culture, and especially when it comes to the idea of leadership uh, within a local church, culture is super important. I want to share some things with us about culture, and maybe you want to write a few things down, take some notes. I think you have a handout there, so you could write in the margins there if I say something amazing. If not, uh, just draw a picture of uh, a doodle, a dog perhaps, a cat, some, a rainbow, maybe a butterfly, whatever you choose. And, uh, and then I'd like, after I share a little bit, Let's have a discussion because I really want your feedback. I really want to hear from you uh, whether or not you understand these principles and maybe where you think we could do better or, or do some growing in the area of culture. But let's start with what is culture and why does it matter? Why, why are we stopping today for 45 minutes or an hour to just have a conversation about culture? Culture is powerful. And if you understand it, the first way to understand culture is in its basic sense, it's a natural thing. Culture's a, a natural thing. Organizations other than churches have cultures. Every, every family has a culture. Every business has a culture. <clears throat> every community has a culture because it's, it's a natural thing. In anthropology, they talk about culture. And actually, in the business world, they talk a lot about culture because they know how powerful it is. And this, it refers to the system of beliefs that guide the behavior of a community or an organization. So it's the beliefs, the things that are held, whether that's on paper or by default in people's hearts and minds, what, what they actually believe, and that's what shapes the behavior of the, of the organization. People, groups, and enterprises have cultures, and those cultures are what makes them unique. So the culture of Starbucks or the culture of Nordstrom's, the culture of 7-Eleven, those are all very different places, right? You could have a different experience walking into 7-Eleven. By the way, we're getting a 7-Eleven in Morgan Hill, a brand new one. So. So yeah, we got that going for us. Slurpees. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, uh, walking into a 7-Eleven is very different than walking into a Nordstrom. And, and it's not about right or wrong, but it's a very clear culture. In Nordstrom, you're walking in, 
You don't want to be rushed. It's high end. There's going to be a lot of customer service. 7-Eleven, you're in a rush. You don't want to have a conversation. You're not trying to build a relationship. You want your Slurpee or your pack of gum, and you want to get your gas, and you want to go. So imagine how powerful culture is, even though it's a natural thing, when it, when it becomes a part of the atmosphere of a church. So I was talking to uh, a a leader. In fact, Pastor Brian was with me the same conversation. We were talking about this leader that came from another church that he grew up in, attended since 1999, but no longer felt that he could continue in that church because he was hitting basically a cultural ceiling. Now, I don't want to give away too many details, but what he was within his own family that he loved very much, that he appreciated very much, and still today prays for and loves, but he could no longer continue with the culture because the culture was running across the grain of what God was doing in his life. So culture is a big deal, and, and certainly we want to get it done. Now, when it comes to a church, culture is about a lot of different words. We could use the word atmosphere. We could use the word spirit. We could use, you know, the spirit of the church, the values of the church, the atmosphere of the church. But basically, it's still the way things are done. It's your programs. It's your traditions. It's your practices. It's your vocabulary. It's what you're doing, and it's why you do it. Culture is the way we do things around here. It's our vibe. It's our tone. It's our mood. It's what comes across to people. And so you can imagine how powerful and important it is. And there's even a supernatural dimension to culture. We talked about Nordstrom's or 7-Eleven or Starbucks. Those are natural things. But when it comes to a church, the presence of God could be a part of culture, right? A spirit of prayer, a spirit of holiness, or a spirit of division, or a spirit of anger, or a spirit of whatever. There can be supernatural dimensions to culture and if you've traveled anywhere outside of your own hometown you can even feel sometimes the spiritual differences the emotional differences in the people and that can be, no I don't think anybody ever really sets out to say we want our city to feel dark or we want our neighborhood to feel dangerous I don't think anybody wants something like that but it becomes very real whether it's intended or not. And you can feel a dark or dangerous or light or friendly culture in a city, a neighborhood, what have you. So culture is uh, very powerful. And the reason we want to talk about it is because <clears throat> when we get culture right, we can get a lot of people saved. And that's the bottom line for us. Our goal is not to be cool uh, for the sake of being cool or not to be current for the sake of being current. Really, we understand that culture is just a tool. It's just a tool to be able to bring this, write down the word influence. Because if we get culture right, we can influence people for the Lord. That's what makes it so powerful. 
Conversely, gang, if we get culture wrong, <laughs> we could lose influence. That's the that's really so when so when we talk about culture, we're not saying, hey, this is our culture because we, you know, this is the way Pastor David wants it, or this is the way young people prefer, or it. It's not about that. It's about bottom line influence. Because if we lose influence, we lose our mission. And our mission is very important. Our mission is super, super important. And that's the, the two greatest powers of culture is its ability to repel or its ability to attract. There are culture repel issues and there are culture attraction issues and if we understand those things then culture makes just a whole lot more sense culture can um, repel imagine i think it's uh, that guy that wrote the book on your culture is eating your vision for lunch what's his name san chand he talks about imagine uh imagine you have a 25 dollar filet mignon cooked to perfection, sizzling, seasoned, beautiful, and then you set it on a dirty, jacked up, scratched, filthy plate. The plate is your culture. So the message, culture is something different than our message. If we're preaching and teaching the Bible and, you know, all of that, that's that's the filet mignon. That's the steak. That doesn't come from us. That comes directly from God in the Bible. But imagine putting that message on top of a dirty, jacked up, scratched up plate. The plate is the culture. And it, it matters. You know, the steak is important, but also how it's presented. And what a lot of people do is they think if I get the culture right, it doesn't matter what the steak tastes like. And that's not true either. You need that steak, and you need to, you need to make sure. And you can major in culture. You can major in the plate, and the, and it's like, where's the beef? Okay, it's really cool, but this these are really cool lights. But my life didn't change, right? Uh, so culture is a big piece of it, but it's not the whole thing. What we want is that beautiful, delicious steak of God's word, and life change served in a way that actually makes the whole experience just go to the next um, level. And I know a little bit about this, even with our church, and I can say this because I was there and I was probably a part of the problem. But when I came back from the Philippines, in Kathy and I came back in 1989, uh, I knew a little bit more about culture because I had been a missionary. Basically, what you need to understand about me is I'm a missionary still. I'm a missionary to Silicon Valley. So my language and my approach and all, it's got to be appropriate to the audience I'm trying to reach, just like it had to be appropriate in the Philippines. I don't have to agree with the way Filipino people do certain things or whatever, but I better, I better at least know how it works there, right? And so I don't always agree with Silicon Valley lifestyles and values and all that, but I better at least understand what the culture is here and how to position my message so that I'm not blowing their minds and ending the conversation or ending the relationship with the very first opening line. 
because American missionaries will do that. They'll come into a, a country and they'll pull something super American and that ends the conversation. Those people don't want anything to do with that person. And it's not just Americans that do that. You've got to be a missionary. You've got to think like a missionary and understand there's a code, there's a language, there's a way things are done in Silicon Valley. I don't have to agree with it, but I need to approach it in a certain way. That's why, for example, on the mask issue, we've, got our, we, we've all got our convictions and so on. But we understand there's a culture here. And to pound the table and say there's no such thing as the coronavirus and we're not wearing these dang masks would have been not only a medical mistake, but a huge cultural faux pas. Does that make sense? So sometimes you've got to, you've got to trim your approach and make sure you're really getting the, uh, the influence there. When I came back from the Philippines, our building was, this wasn't our building, our building was at 1255 Pedro Street. Some of you were there. Our carpets had, you could, you could pull a string on our carpet and it would go 30, <laughs> it would go 30 feet. And that was like the center aisle. You know, we had the pews. Uh, we had a choir with robes, mauve robes. We had a Hammond B3 organ. Uh, we, we had a lot of cultural stuff going on. What was that? All the pastors in literal thrones. Okay, I don't mean, I don't mean chairs. I mean thrones of varying size, okay, according to your spiritual rank. <laughs> and our name, our name, our name was Evangel, which... I have a PhD and I've been saved for 45 years. I still don't know what that means. No, I really do. I really do. But I don't think our neighbors knew what evangel was. And so there was so we had to renovate a lot of a lot of things. Because why? Because culture's powerful. It's really powerful and it's important to grow and change so that your influence and your communication can stay the same. I like this story that I read. Uh, it's actually a, uh, a book by Mark De Maz on, uh, on culture uh, when it comes to multiculture. And he talks about, <clears throat> imagine you're sitting in a beach chair at the shore and you fall asleep at the shore. And then you wake up. When you fell asleep, the, the water was 50 feet away or 50 yards away. But when you woke up, the tide had come in, and now the water is all around you, and now you're in the water. What happened? You didn't move, but the world around you moved. And you found yourself in a different position than where you were when you fell asleep. And sometimes the church, I love the church, and this is my church, and I got saved in this church, and you know, I love this, but it's possible that for a time we fell asleep while the world was changing around us. And when we woke up, we realized, wow, we're in a, we're in a weird position here. And so that's where we that's where we started to gradually change, you know, turn the tomato truck without dumping out the tomatoes, started to reinvent and redo and layer up and move toward 
more of the culture that we have today. Not that our culture doesn't still need to change, but I think we're a lot closer to be in a place where people could walk in and say, I get this. This makes sense to me. Now, there are some people that would say they grew up with choir robes and Hammond B3 organs and uh, pastors on thrones, and that's nostalgic for them. They would say, and every once in a while, they'll say, boy, I miss the good old days. They'll even say it to me. I miss the good old days. I wish, you know, I wish our guys wouldn't wear baseball caps and have torn jeans on Sunday morning. You know, I still hear that from some of the, from some of the old timer. But it's not, that we've, it's not that we've lost our holiness. It's that we realize the tide moved and we were still dressing like and looking like and talking like something that was from a distant past, maybe somewhere around Tulsa, Oklahoma, or Dallas, Texas. And we're not in Tulsa. And we're not in Dallas. We're in Silicon Valley. This is where we are. And so we're missionaries. Welcome to the mission field. So we made some changes because... There are, there are things called culture killers, and they really, they're actually influence killers. So we, we, want to, we want to take the thrones off the stage, and we want to update and make sure that things are moving forward. Here's the problem with the body of Christ when it comes to culture. We are utterly resistible when we're trying to be irresistible because we have a message that's that's irresistible if people really understand the gospel and if their heart is really open to faith they're going to find Jesus Christ irresistible but we just want to make sure that we're not the very resistible part of the (laughs) of the equation like we want them to love us and miss us and think that we're nearly as great as Jesus does that make sense all right you guys with me on this so culture can repel and culture, but likewise, culture can attract. Culture can be magnetic. It can draw people. And so, for example, this guy that Brian and I met with last week, he's a leader. He's got a list of talents and abilities, and uh, he's with us because he loves the vibe. He loves the wisdom that's here. He loves the teaching that's here. He didn't use the word culture, but... And he happens to be, his first language is not English. He happens to be Hispanic. So the, and even though we're not a Hispanic uh, environment, we're not any kind of an ethnic environment. We're a multi-environment, right? Place where everybody could feel comfortable. He wants to be here because the vibe, the culture, and so on is, is healthier for him and his family, and he sees himself growing. So that's the part that, you know, we could talk about the cultural turnoffs, and I'm sure we have some, but let's, let's remember the reason we want to work hard on culture is because it, it's very attractive. It pulls people. If we get culture right, and we do some of the things that are written on this next piece of paper, uh, that not only makes all of us in this room happy, but it's going to attract high-quality leaders and people that can help us uh, reach the world for Jesus. That's the why of culture school and of doing things on purpose when it comes to culture. So we all give up a little piece of our sovereignty when we agree to a larger culture. 
So if you're into rap or rock or country and Western, we kind of give up some of those preferences to try to create a plate that a lot of people could look at and go, I don't care where you're from. That looks like a good piece of steak right there. I'm hungry for that. So there's some things that would be attractive to all people. Now, you can't make everything attractive to all people. It won't happen. People like different kinds of music. They like different kinds of uh, vibes and feels. Some people want stained glass and pipe organs. Some people want robes. That, that can be fine. You just kind of got to know who you're trying to influence. And culture is usually not a question of right or wrong. But culture is a question of what's our strategy. What actually, what actually will help us to have the, the greatest bang impact and boom for our, uh, for our efforts and our buck. Okay? So culture is powerful. And uh, we, we definitely don't want to be that place. I walked into a Kmart not long ago, one of the few remaining Kmarts, because most of them are gone. And I understood immediately why Kmart is gone. <laughs> because it was like, have you guys been in a, in a store that's just like, I couldn't, I wanted to take a shower after I left. I couldn't wait to get out of there. I'm thinking, how are they even still alive, even at this location? Um, right? So we know, how, we know how powerful culture is. All right, so let's get into this sheet here, and let's talk about the big pieces of our culture. We've worked hard. This was a, a collaborative effort. Some of you were a part of this three or four years ago when we came up with this. But I don't see this changing a lot. Maybe, maybe there's pieces of this that could be better, but I have a feeling if we did this right, that 50 years from now, this will still be relevant. This will still be, this isn't about color schemes or trends in music or trends in fashion. This is about culture things that we believe would honor Jesus and draw people to him. So let's take a look at the three big pieces of, of our culture. First of all, who are we? We're a church for all people. We'll have another whole session on that piece. And we talk a lot about being a church for all people. We've done series on that, and we're multi. We are a church, but we're a church for all people. Would a Buddhist person feel comfortable here? Would a homosexual person feel comfortable here? Would a transgender person feel comfortable here? Hopefully, if they were seeking Jesus Christ. So this isn't a place where you can come seek Buddha or come seek the culture of the world. This is a church. Jesus Christ is the builder and maker of the church. We're following him as disciples and so on. But we want them to walk right in the door. So as that kind of a church, we are relationally open, relationally receptive, and theologically exclusive. Does that make sense? So we're not bending our message or changing the Bible or whatever. You could do that to reach culture, but you would lose God. So it's great to have a nice plate, but if you lose the steak, you're out of business. So for us, the steak is the scriptures and our convictions and our approach. So we still view marriage 
the way we've always viewed it. We still view sin the way we've always viewed it. What we want to do, though, is create a, a, a relational atmosphere where people don't feel that we're being hostile with them just because they vote differently or because they have a broken sexual uh, life, right? So we want, we want to welcome them and then bring them into followers of Jesus Christ. So we're a church for all people. That's who we are. What do we do? We'll have another session on that, but we inspire transformed lives. That's what we do, and we have a strategy. The thing I want to focus on today is how we lead, because this is a, this is a group of leaders. I'm talking to pastors. I'm talking to uh, staff leaders. I'm talking to life group leaders sitting here. And how do we lead? This is our gateway leadership values. And the statement that's on the page here under how we lead is, we lead others. Let's read this out loud together, even with your masks and whatever else. Let's, let's read it out loud. We lead others as gracious, authentic, and accountable servants. We live in balance, mentor other leaders, and pursue excellence. It's going to be really interesting when I ask the question, how are we doing on that? <laughs> I have a feeling there's some things that we're doing really well on that and some things where we could grow and get better, right? Uh, and that's the nature of life. But this breaks down to seven basic core leadership values. And let's go through them. And then I'll ask you guys, because I've done a lot of talking, I'll ask you guys on each one three questions. How do you define this word? How do you define it? What does it mean to you? Why does it matter? And how can we live it out together? All right. We might even ask, how are we doing on it? <laughs> so let's start with the first one. Servanthood. What does that mean to you? Anybody can call out and I'll repeat it into the mic. What does it mean? What does servanthood mean? Daniel. For me, uh, it means to serve others first before yourself. Serve others first before yourself. Great. Anybody else? Give of yourself for others. Give of yourself for others. Take of others. That's great. Anybody else? Taking care of people. Taking care of people. Beautiful. Meet the need, you know. Uh, was Jesus a servant? Yes, he was. Yes, he was. Did he, did he require servanthood? He actually did. He said, if you want to be great, and by the way, there's nothing wrong with wanting to be great. He said, if you want to be great, pick up the towel. And that means pick up a piece of paper. There's no job that is beneath us. There's no job we would consider too, too great. In fact, all the apostles, they all started off their letters in the New Testament saying, Paul, a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter, a servant, a bondservant. James, a servant. They saw themselves as totally committed, right? Brian. Right. Serve. So the Son of Man came not to, be served. not to be served, but to serve and give. Yep. Samantha. Um, demonstrating God's heart for people by their actions, by taking care of people. So it's like we. Pull that down so I can hear you. <laughs> Thank you. I think, uh, I'll just say it again. 
yeah, just like serve others, we're ultimately just demonstrating God's heart and like the love that we receive from him. So as leaders, we've answered the question, what am I here for? I'm not here to be served. I'm here to serve. And people know it and feel it when you're really there for them and you want to take care of their kids or their teenagers or make sure they're comfortable. They, they can feel that. And would you say that's attractive and maybe contagious, right? Um, why do you think that matters? Why would, that, why would it be important to have a culture of serving? Mm. So it's just knowing that you're cared and seen and someone's just looking out for you. It's attractive. Very good. Carol? I say that the, um, the waiter is the one who connects the kitchen with the eater. The waiter connects the diner with the kitchen. So you have a connection between the source and the receiver. Yeah. The, 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 the server represents the whole thing. Right. And he makes sure you're taken care of. So good. Well, this makes me think uh, <clears throat> this makes me think about another value, which is balanced living. There's kind of two sides to the serving coin, because if you go too far in serving, not th I mean, not that you can't really. We would never give up on the serving attitude, but does it mean that we are here to do everything for everyone at all times, no matter what, and that we can't be balanced. In, a, in other words, I have to serve at the church, so if my kid has to sit in a hot car for three hours while I preach and prophesy, uh, that's just the way it has to be, right? Is there, is there another side of serving? Do you think it's possible for us to live, give, and lay down our lives while still maintaining some balance in our lives? Yes? Are we doing good at that? We should be. Because serving is not just the demand of the people. If I don't hear what I'm not saying, we're not here to meet the demands of every person. Jesus never did that. He never did that. You can quote and say he healed everyone who was sick and all that, but that was the influence of his ministry. He didn't leave people out, but he walked right past people at the pool of Bethesda Lots of them that were sick. And he focused on one guy. And what was the difference? Because that's the one the father told him to minister to. And, he, and Jesus commented on this. He said, I only do what I see the father do, and I do what God has called me to do. So the way to, the way to keep balance as you're serving, you got to stay healthy yourself. you gotta, you got to make sure you're taking in enough oxygen yourself so that, so that you'll have something left to do the job. And that's the hard part of it. That's the hard part of being a servant is not feeling bad about taking care of yourself. Now, we all have a job to do, and, and we have to do it. We can't say, well, this is my job description, and this is what I'm hired and paid for. But, of course, you know, I just feel like today I need a three-hour lunch, so I'm going to do that. We can't do that. But we've, we've got to find a way to create balance in our lives uh, when we're not working so that we, we have something there for our uh, families. So let me ask you about balanced living. What, 
what, what does that mean to you? What does it mean to have a balanced life? Nobody here knows what that is. So that I would say maybe this is a, an area where we could probably, you know, okay, go ahead, Pastor April. Pull that down so I can hear you. I'm an old man. Thank you. Wow. Become a savior. Yeah, because because um, we want to do everything we can to see change in people's lives, but sometimes we put ourselves in the seat of the savior. Like, mm -hmm. it's dependent on me. Mm -hmm. This person's situation, whether it's an orphan, a widow, a struggling single parent, you know, whatever it might be. But um, I think the balance comes from remembering who's on the throne. Yeah. Not carrying it when you go home, which is really, really it is. We have to develop that ability to leave a person's problem on them. They have to bear their own burden. So I have kids. I got to raise my kids, but I don't have to raise your kids. I, that's not reasonable. I can't do that. That's too much. So everybody's got to carry their own. But at the same time, we can support each other and serve each other in that process. Right. Yeah. Kathy. Um, I think it's good to You know you're in trouble when you get that text or that email that says, I know it's your vacation, but <laughs> whenever, you <laughs> whenever you start that off, it's like, okay, I'm going to cross a boundary here, so there better be a good reason, right? Yeah. In this room, we can encourage each other to say, no, this is your day off, this is for you and your family, right. We do. Sometimes we need it desperately. And the people that are working with us and for us as volunteers who are not paid will sometimes leave it all on the field. And, that, and that's okay. But if we see somebody in our world not living in balance, we need to sit them down and say, you know, I, I've noticed this. You never stop. T t talk to me about when you're resting. Talk to me about... How much time have you had with your spouse or your kids or whatever? Because people can grab the servant message, which is so important. I'm, by the way, I'm speaking on servanthood, so give me some good points. I'm going to speak on servanthood at the conference. But we also, have to, we also have to balance that. And that's the trick with values is you can't go bananas with one thing and wipe out all the other things. So we're looking for balance. Okay, let's go to another... Um, value that's real important, which is graciousness. We worked really hard on this one to try to find a word that would communicate the right tone for who we are and what we are as leaders. What does graciousness mean to you? What does it mean to be gracious? Jordan? It means I think it means 
you know, leading in a way that conveys that you love the people that you're that you're leading. So the example of like saying something hard to somebody or speaking the truth to somebody, it's that balance of the truth in love. Mm. I don't think it's avoidance. Right. I think it's I think it's leaning into tough moments, but doing it in a way that that person uh, can walk away knowing, even if their feelings might be a little hurt or whatever. Uh, it's just the same in a marriage. You know, you have to you have to learn how to communicate truthfully to each other, but in a way that the other person still feels uh, this. My husband or my wife cares for me. Mm-hmm. That's good. That's a there, there's another balancing act when it comes to graciousness, and that's accountability. That's another one of our our values, right? So you could hold somebody accountable in a gracious way. Gracious doesn't mean you get to do whatever you want. Gracious means, hey, I'm here for you, and I understand, but you still. <laughs> so it's like the marriage analogy, right? hey, I need to communicate, even though this might be uh, an uncomfortable conversation, you really hurt my feelings. Did you mean to say it that way? It felt like you were saying this. Is that the message you want to communicate to me right now? Is this what you need me to know? Or do you want me to know something different? You know. And well, all right, who else wants to talk about graciousness? Daniel. Graciousness for me is just overseeing their hurts and pains and letting them know that there's this trust factor. You know, hey, I'm gonna love you no matter where you're at. No matter you feel like you're in the dumps, mm. you're at the top of the peak of the mountain. But letting them know, hey, okay, let's wipe the tears. Let's kind of let's let's carry this together. I'm here. I'm not giving up on you. That's good. Why is graciousness important? Just so everybody can feel comfortable and nobody gets their feelings hurt and it's never awkward or what? I mean. What's the strategic importance of being gracious? I think graciousness, one, gives me the revelation that I'm not entitled, but somebody trusted me with doing that. Mm. And it makes me the end result of that, the outcome of that, or my application is, and I get to be here. Like, I get to be in the room, and I don't deserve that. Sense of privilege or a sense of... Uh... And when there's leadership moments, like, <clears throat> as George was talking about, when you, when you kind of have to confront somebody or need somebody into a better attitude yeah that's where i go like hey dude like we get to do this you know we're not entitled to this and we definitely don't we swap stories we don't deserve this mm-hmm. but god's so gracious to us first we're just paying it that's i think that's a really important point because when we feel like we're entitled to it that's when we're going to get hard on other people like that servant that What's the story that Jesus told about the servant who, who was owed just a small amount of money and the other, the other one owed like a million dollars or whatever, and he was so hard on the one that owed just a small amount of money when he had been forgiven of so much. So his gracious filter, <laughs> he was all for graciousness when it came to him, but he wasn't willing to convert it into currency for Others, he felt entitled maybe to receive grace, but not required to give it. Lydia? Um, for me, uh, right now, personally, in children's ministry, um, it's a teachable moment for me. Um, I am able to extend grace 
grades when they made a mistake or made a bad decision. Sharing with them, again, that teachable moment where they can see grace and when they uh, are taught to take ownership for their mistake mm. that, uh, or the bad choice that they made and they're able to say it in that moment, they in that instant get grace. And it's that opportunity for them to see that I'll make mistakes, but their grace is going to be there. Yeah. And it's continuous and um, it's a teachable Persistent. <laughs> and it is. It's like I sometimes have to do it over and over and over. Oh, yeah, especially with kids. Yeah. And, and I'm just like, you know, the second I do it again, I'm like, one of these days it's got to stop. <laughs> but, it's, you know, it's not just kids because there are organizational experts that say the larger the organization, the more like a third-grade school teacher you have to be in order to lead, which is just constantly saying, we raise our hands before we talk. We get so the larger the group gets, and it, it can be maddening. You think, don't we already know this? We said this a year ago. Why do I have to repeat it? But it's the nature of a large organization or a large group or a large team that you've got to keep. And that's kind of why we are having culture school because we're bringing people back to this is who we are, this is what we do, and we're not frustrated. We're not having culture school because you guys just don't get it. We're just saying. This is who we are. This is what we do. This is what it takes to keep the culture alive, to keep it in front of everybody. Okay, April? Um, I, would just, I was trying to look up that word opposite of... Um, opposite of gracious? Yeah. And there's like so many, like impoliteness, um, ungraciousness, insolence, disrespect, whatever. Um, and I think that when we like act out of ungraciousness, it's a lack of self-control in ourselves. Turns into our yeah. you know, when we really are the opposite of gracious. Mm -hmm. And so I think it, it takes a lot of self control to be gracious when someone isn't being gracious to you. That's really hard. Mm -hmm. As leaders, it's hard to maintain graciousness when you feel hurt or offended or when something's coming at you. But it doesn't matter what it is. We, we all have the urge to be ungracious, you know, because we're, we get frustrated. We're comfortable with graciousness as long as it's coming at us. But it has to flow through us, right? to be gracious because I think that's how people learn how to be gracious because they realize, like, I don't deserve this person's grace, like, specifically with volunteers. So sometimes people just always come up around you, and it's like us always being gracious with them is important. Yeah. Because then they learn, I probably don't deserve to be on this team. But my leader is so gracious with me. Mm -hmm. I want to try harder to be And you can still, as a leader, say, hey, you're killing me with the tardiness thing. You know, yeah. And that's, that's another part, that's another value, which is authenticity, right? Being, you know, being real, telling the truth. But like Jordan said, it's the truth in love. And that's another one of those balancing acts. It's not a pound of truth with an ounce of love. Because there are people like that. Or there's a pound of love and grace with an ounce of truth. Probably the biggest part about the graciousness factor is that it is so easy to damage another person. And we have to, you know, like we say it around here, a leader's words weigh a thousand pounds. 
So when we're speaking, we don't realize we represent God. We represent spiritual authority. We represent the church. So if we come on too strong, the waiter just delivered a, a plate of hatred and bitterness and right. So that's a that's a big a big reason why it's especially important for leaders uh, to be gracious. But we do have to be authentic and real. And it's okay to put your arm around somebody emotionally or, or however and say, you know I love you and you know I'm here for you, but you are literally driving me crazy. <laughs> this, that, that conversation did not feel good. That felt like, that didn't sound right to me. And you know I love you, but it didn't sound good. And I think we gotta get to that point because so graciousness doesn't mean not telling the truth. And sometimes we all, and I'm guilty of this, we'll, we'll hold back because we don't want to hurt somebody and we won't say something that needs to be said. And, and it will hurt the team because we're not being honest. We're not being authentic. What does it mean to you to be authentic? That's huge. Well, that's also, that's also a balancing act, right? Right. I'm sorry, who? Anne. Oh, Anne, I'm sorry. You're on, a, you're on a screen right in front of me and I'm not paying attention to you. Anne, I'm so glad you're here. It's all good. Um, I just think if there's an honesty, just, to try, just, you know, just being ourselves, we can come from a place of graciousness and God's love by just being comfortable with who we are. And there can be an acceptance factor extended back out to others when I think about that. Yeah. Uh, honest with who we are. Also, how we feel, uh, also what we think, and authentic doesn't mean right. Just because you, just because you're being real, doesn't mean you're right. Just keeping it real. That's like a. I've noticed that keeping it real is code for I get to do whatever I want, and I don't know if that's exactly what we're going to hear back from the Lord. <laughs> Well, Lord, I'm just keeping it real. Okay, but uh, you violated 12 commandments. You know, it's like, uh, yeah. Even maybe the authenticity. Authenticity. Authenticity, thank you. Um, they feel like that's among the event. And, it, and you're venting, and like, whoa, hold on. Right, right. Yeah. Proverbs says, only a fool says everything that's on his mind. So that's interesting too, <laughs> Carol. <laughs> oh, I like that. Yeah, yeah. Credibility. Right. That's really well said. I really love that. All right, let's move on. We're running out of time. So we got servanthood. We got graciousness. We got authenticity, we got accountability, and you can see some of those, the way they kind of play off each other, balanced living. And then uh, the last two is mentoring and pursuing excellence. So mentoring, why, would, why is that a value? What are we saying there? This is my job, I, I wanna do my job. And if I tell you how I do my job, then, then I'll lose my job. 
the nature of love gives. And if we have the nature of love and we're expressing it, it will show itself in giving. And giving is whatever God has given to us. It has to be translated out to what God would like to give to that person through us. And that may well be uh, a certain way of doing things or teaching them this or being the example or uh, 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 anything like that where there's a, a multiplication, you know, be fruitful and multiply. You know, uh, sometimes we could be like the first John talks about, I speak to you children, I speak to you young men, I speak to you fathers. The young men have overcome the evil one, but that's all they've done. They've just, they're okay for themselves. But the fathers, I speak to you fathers because you love the children, the ones that have yet to get there. And if we don't have a heart to give out, you know, to give back, to give around, to create an environment and give life, then we're not mentoring. Mentoring is being free with insight and information. That is, that is crucial for another person's progress and not withholding. So knowledge in some organizations is tightly guarded because we want to keep everybody in their place. But in a life-giving, especially an organization where discipleship is a, is a, is a primary function, right? We're, we want other people to succeed. We've got to be willing to say, here's how I do it. Here's how I do it. Or here's what the Bible says. Yeah. Uh, Carrie. One of my favorite things that Pastor Frank Damasio said, he was here doing a thing on uh, service leadership. Yep. And he went into mentoring and he said, a leader is not great because he himself is great. A leader is great because he makes others great. A leader is not great because he himself is great because they make other people great. Right. So good. That's really good. Really good. I think that's how, I think that's how Jesus made disciples. <clears throat> Jesus mentored his disciples. And he, we look to him as the example. When he tells us to go make disciples, we have to look at his life and what did he do? Well, he spent like every day with his guys. And he first did in front of them, he said, follow me, and then he did in front of them, and then later on, he'd go, did you see what I did? did you see what I did there? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. And they would talk about it. Right. Sometimes they would get wrong, and he'd say, that's wrong. He would correct it, right, yeah. yeah. So I think that mentoring is a value for us, because otherwise, how do you make disciples? You can't make disciples just by them watching you. You can't make disciples just by talking to someone. It's a, it's a combination. Not everybody wants to be mentored, but the ones that want to be mentored really deserve our attention. Who's pulling on your shirt saying, I want to know more about it? Because we're all looking for the superstar volunteer. and the super, But I bet you there's people in your life that are tugging on your shirt saying, how did you do that? And ultimately, mentoring another person is the highest form of investment and love because it's really saying I see potential in you and I want to work with that I believe in you you don't it's not just it's not just do what I say it's that it's a relationship like I think you could I think you could take this and probably do better at it than I can you know
That's a, that's when somebody speaks value into mentoring is a way of speaking value into a person's life and not just getting the job done by using them. We don't use people. We love people and we serve people. We serve their destiny and their greatness, not just. And I know we're all trying to make our team work and we're all trying to get things done. But peop, there's a big difference between feeling like you're a cog in someone else's machine and knowing that somebody actually cares about your future and they want to speak into your future. All of that is really good. Is there, are there, are there a couple of these that you think you could do better at? Don't answer that question publicly, but look at these values and say, where could I grow? Because we can all grow. We can all do better. Starting with me, I can do better. And then which ones of these do you feel like you're doing pretty good? Like you'd pat yourself on the back and say, you know, I think I'm, I think I'm getting this. My question for you on that would be, would your wife and team agree? Would your team also agree that, you <laughs> that you're getting this? Because we all have blind spots. But that's where, you know, a good, healthy discussion, talking through the values. And really, guys, let's take this to our... Let's take this to our team meetings. Let's take these values like we do on our team prayer or whenever you gather your team up, just hit them with one, one value and just say, are we doing this? Are we living? Are we living? And would we like to be servants? Would we like to be balanced? Would we like to be authentic and real and uh, accountable? Those are things that I think leaders should have. You say, well, where's the anointing? The anointing is in a church for all people. We're a spirit-filled church. That, that's, that's for everybody. Everybody should be anointed. Everybody should be touched by the Holy Spirit. It's not just leaders. So that's baked in. But if we're going to be leaders, we have to understand this is us. This is who we are. This is who we've always been. This is really Jesus. This is, this is how we need to do it. The last one is pursuing excellence, and I think we all get that. The only thing I want to note there is that excellence can be a really rough taskmaster. Like, if I take every message I've ever done, I wouldn't say that very many of them were excellent. I mean, in my, I never say to myself when I'm done preaching, that was excellent. <laughs> You know, it can, be, it can be hard. And if we're not putting excellence on ourselves, but we're putting excellence on other people, it's tough. It can feel, on one hand, excellence is something we all want, but just not so bad that we become a cult. And not, we don't want excellence so bad that somebody that's still learning and growing would never give it a shot. We want a culture where other people will take a shot. And they're given a chance and they can grow and we factor in, hey, he's not the greatest drummer or that wasn't the greatest uh, PowerPoint slide, but that was a really good start. And and we want to we want to keep that going and just because it can be so tight that nobody really qualifies. And I've noticed sometimes with aesthetic things and musical things and spiritual things, we, the standard can be so high that it completely discourages participation. Because people think, well, I'm not, the, that's not me. I, I don't think I could do that. And that's why our team isn't filled out and staffed up. 
because we only want what's perfect and we're fresh out of perfect people, right? So culture is powerful. Culture is the plate that we put the steak on. It's the way we do things around here. And it's our ability to attract and really to bring people to Jesus. It's a, it's a big deal. And as leaders, we have a certain culture. And we're free to say, you know, that wasn't your most gracious moment. <laughs> uh, you don't have to be perfect, but I want you moving toward excellence. Or here's how I do it. Think about this. Find your own way, but I see potential in you. And have that life-giving culture as a, as a leadership team. Thank you for listening to the Gateway Leadership Podcast with David Kings Tracy, inspiring you to lead in every area of life. We'll be releasing a new episode every month, so be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Gateway City Church is one church that meets in multiple cities. To find us or to learn more, visit mygatewaycity.church. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you right here next month.